Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock Harbor Church's virtual broadcast of our sermon today. We're glad you joined us, and as you're like us, many of us are home and not being able to meet because of this coronavirus and the mandate that has been put out for churches not to meet at this time. So a lot of folks are stuck at home and have to do church kind of at home through the internet. So we're glad you joined us. And now we're going to get into our sermon series in the book of Exodus. And the interesting thing, as we study the book of Exodus, the timing couldn't be better because some of the things that we see in Moses' life, we're seeing in our own lives. And the crisis that Israel faced um, and what God was going to do through them through that crisis and through Moses, we see similar things now in our own crisis, in our own lives that God works the same way. So we're learning a lot about Moses, a lot about ourselves, and we're going to glean a lot from today's message. And and it's going to be in Exodus chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. And I've entitled the message, The Lord's Assurance, His Presence. God had put a call on Moses' life during a major crisis in Israel's history. And he puts obviously a call on our lives as well, even in now the crisis that we face with this coronavirus that's going around the whole world. However, we first have to be trained for what lies ahead. God will not open the door to us for more ministry or a new season of life until we're properly trained to take on what's needed for that call that he puts on us. So a lot of times, as we see with Moses, um, we are put in the desert, so to speak. And we talked about that last time, that we have to have a, a, a time where we're trained in the desert. We find out things in us that, that need to come out of us and things that need to be put into us. And that's what Moses was learning in the 40 years that he was in the desert. And Moses, probably out there in the desert for 40 years, thought, well, my call is over. God can't use me. The chances of helping the Hebrews is over. Life, maybe as he knew it, was over. And this monotonous routine of taking care of sheep all day and, and nothing to do, you know, it, it, it reminded Moses of a permanent situation that didn't seem that it was going to ever end. Where could Moses go? What could he do? Only just to take care of sheep? He was isolated. He was hemmed in. He was stuck alone many days. And maybe he resigned to the thought that these conditions that he was in, this environment, were simply just the consequences of what he had done, obviously, and that he had failed so bad, there was no way back. There was no way from this failure. And kind of had a a form of fatalism. And that's what happens to some people sometimes. Moses had failed, but it didn't mean ultimate failure. He had made a big mistake. He had taken matters into his own hands. And sometimes we do the same thing too. We take matters in our own hands and we make a big mistake. And a lot of times we suffer from the consequences of that. And we think, well, this can never be redeemed. This can never change. I can never get out of this this life that I'm stuck in or whatever. And what Moses is going to find out is that the desert time trained him. And that um, 
even though he had been rejected by Israel initially, that God is still going to use him. Um, he, like we talked about, he was rejected because he didn't have proper authority. He didn't wait on the timing of God. He, God wasn't with him when he tried to deliver Israel. And so now he's learned that lesson from the desert. So you have to think about Moses. He's been out there for 40 years. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't have any place to go. And that's how some of us feel right now, even in this, this coronavirus virus crisis. You know, if, if you're in high school, your whole high school has, has been shut down. If you're in any kind of sports, everything sports has been shut down and people have lost their jobs. Um, businesses have shut down. Churches have shut down. And so there's a lot of things going on that are causing a lot of turmoil, a lot of crisis in people's lives. And they don't know what to do. They're stuck. And, 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 and so because of that, where do you go from here? Well, one of the things you have to, to do is evaluate your desert experience. Why does God have you in this experience? He knew this would happen to you and I. And what does he want us to learn from it? The same thing would apply, you know, obviously to Moses as well. And Moses had been trained by the desert. And now he's a very humble man at this point. He has grown in the areas that God needed, him to, needed for him to grow in. And Moses learned from his mistakes. And now, because of that, that independent, that self-directed life, he realizes doesn't work. That God doesn't work through people who take matters into their own hand, that get ahead of him. Moses has learned that lesson. And God has revealed all of this to Moses in these 40 years to condition his heart, to make him ready for the next calling. And maybe that's what God's doing with us. Maybe God is conditioning us right now in this desert-like experience for what he has next for us, the next calling, what is in store for us. And I don't know what that could be, but whatever we're going through now is training us, is preparing us for that next call. And God wants us to know that when we have spent enough time in the desert and we're ready, then he can use us. And that's what he's going to do with Moses today. In verse 1 of the chapter, it says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, it's interesting about this mountain and it's about, about this location. And I want to talk a little bit about this location. It is a key location. Now, when you see on the map here, what we have is in the middle is the Sinai Peninsula. On the left-hand side is Egypt. And then on the right-hand side is Saudi Arabia. The Red Sea fingers into two areas. You got the uh, Gulf of Suez between Sinai and Egypt. And then on the right side of the screen, you have Aqaba. And that's the, the finger of the Red Sea that's called Aqaba, that goes into that area, the Gulf of Aqaba. From what we understand about recent archaeology and recent findings, is that the Red Sea crossing happened through Aqaba, not in the Suez part. And we'll talk about that when we get into the Red Sea crossing. But in the Gulf of Aqaba, they would have crossed over. There's an underwater land bridge that's there. There's chariot wheel formations underneath that are encrusted with coral. We'll talk about that later on. 
But the area of Midian in the Bible was Saudi Arabia. Paul mentions this, and he says that he went to Saudi Arabia where Mount Sinai was. And so this is the area of Midian. And interesting enough, in this picture, as you can see, there's a a mountain on the left-hand side of the screen that has a blackened peak. Now, people have got into Saudi Arabia, have studied this area, and there's all kinds of archaeological remains on the bottom of the mountain. But the top of this mountain is burnt, as you can see. And people say, well, that, that might be just lava. It's actually not. People have been to this mountain and went there and saw the other evidence around it, and the mountain appears to be burnt at the top. It's not volcanic rock. They've actually uh, been to the top of the mountain, they've climbed it, and they have noticed that this mountain is not volcanic. When they crack open the rocks, the rocks are real rocks, but uh, the tops of them are burnt. So if it was volcanic rock, it would be black all the way through. It's only black on the outside of the rocks. So it appears that there was a massive fire on the top of this mountain, and it's still there today. You can see the charred remains of the burnt area from the top of the mountain. This is the top of Mount Sinai. Now, the Arabs that live in this area have always had by tradition that this is uh, uh, the mountain of Moses, where he received the law. So by tradition, even the Arabs that live there believe that. But there are other things that that go to support that this mountain is the real Mount Sinai. And so some of the things I want to show you just real quickly is um, there are are corrals. There's a a, uh, there's pillars there. There's uh, there's and you can see in this picture here the corrals. Why is there a corral at the at the bottom of, of this mountain? Well, obviously, Moses, that's how they they got the animals to Moses to be sacrificed. And these are holding pens. These are holding corrals at the bottom. And right next to it is an altar there that someone would have sacrificed animals there. And so right there, you have the holding pen and the corrals, and then you have Moses' altar, and then you obviously have a slaughter platform that's still there today. And it lines up at the base of this mountain, which is exactly what Moses did. And you can see that in a blown-up picture on this area right now. Also, there are pillars there. And we know what Scripture says is that Moses erected 12 pillars in the area as well. And so you can see these pillars that have been cut down, but they're of a different type of stone, as you can see. It's a kind of a whitish stone, and these pillars are spread out right there, by these corrals and by the altar. And there they are right there. Well, obviously, when you see scripture, it says Moses built 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And there you are as well uh, with pillars. I mean, this is all there. Uh, Later on, I'll show you there's another place where we, we assume and we presume that there's the golden calf altar. There's the split rock there as well. And this place is big enough to inhabit two million people encamped around the mountain, which is a perfect place where where people could live. The one in Sinai is a Catholic tradition place, and it doesn't have a lot of evidence behind it. It's a Catholic tradition place that uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, uh, founded and said, okay, that's the mountain of Moses. But the one in Sinai doesn't have the best evidence. 
the one in Arabia does, especially when you see all these things uh, surrounding the mountain and a top, the top of the mountain is burnt. Anyway, um, you can research that a little bit more on your own, but this is a key area. And why is this key area? Because this is where Moses is going to meet with God in the burning bush, and this is where uh, he's going to bring back the children of Israel, and God's going to come down with uh, a cloud and a fire and earthquake to give the law to the Israelites. So let's return now to the text in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Now, this is interesting. As Moses sees this bush that, that's on fire, the text is saying to us that the angel of the Lord was in the flame, in the bush. And the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is always the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. This is what's called a theophany or a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus um, in a pre-incarnate form. And so it is Jesus who is in the bush, in the flame of the bush. In the Old Testament, the word of God was called the Memra. In the New Testament, it's called the Logos. And we now know the second person in the Trinity, the Memra, the Logos, is the Son of God. He's the word of God who became incarnate and took on human nature, a human nature, and we know the second person of the Trinity as Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, obviously having two natures, one nature being God, the other nature being man. But this is Jesus speaking to Moses. And so the text says, so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. What was different about this bush? The bush was like any other desert bush. Moses has seen other fires and bushes catch fire. So what's so unusual about this? It's a single bush, number one, but it's out of the ordinary because the flames around it are not consuming it. So there's something different about this fire, and that's what gets Moses' attention. Look in verse 3. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see the great sight. Why the bush does not burn? Verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Now when you see the repeat of someone's name in Hebrew, like, like in this instance, in the Hebrew culture, the repetition of someone's name is a way of expressing uh, endearment, kindness, affection, and friendship. So Moses, when he would have heard Jesus speak out of the bush, would have heard his name being spoken with, uh, with endearment, with love, affection, like a friend was calling to him. And so that whoever was calling him, he didn't know at this point who's calling him, it's someone who loved and cared for him could be, uh, be, be interpreted by the repetition of his name. Also, let me point this out. The fire is evidently the physical manifestation of the Shekinah glory. Okay, so when we see the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, we would see the Shekinah in clouds or light or fire or a mixture of all three. But the Shekinah now in this passage is manifesting as fire. It's not manifesting as clouds or light. 
So when you see fire, though, the Shekinah rep being represented by fire, fire in the Old Testament and New Testament is associated to God's judgment, typically upon his enemies. And if it refers to his people, like the Israelites or the church or whatever, that fire represents the disciplining hand of God on believers. It also represents God's evaluation upon our works as believers at the Bema Seat as well. So fire can destroy enemies, but it also is used to refine and purify. And that's the, the message you start seeing with the Shekinah glories revelation there. And remember, God represented himself to Abraham with a pot of fire. Do you remember that? A flame of fire, and then there was a furnace, and they walked through, uh, God walked through making a covenant with Abraham as he put Abraham asleep. You remember that? It was associated to fire. And then he led the Israelites out of Egypt, as we'll see in the future, with a pillar of fire. And then he descended on Mount Sinai in fire. Daniel saw him as one sitting on a throne of fire. And John sees Jesus, the glorified Jesus, in the book of Revelation with eyes like a flame of fire. So fire is always associated to the Shekinah, but is also associated to judgment, to purification. And, and notice that in this text that the angel of the Lord and God are equated in the text. So without a doubt, Moses is trying to say that the angel of the Lord is God. So we know this is the second person of the Trinity, and it is Jesus himself. So look at how Moses responds. And he said, here I am. Verse 5, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, notice in the text that God doesn't identify himself initially. But the first thing that God has Moses do is take precautions about coming too close. God is concerned about Moses coming too close because of the holy nature of God. Uh, because as we will see in the Old Testament, what will be revealed to Israel, and as we know now, um, people just simply cannot approach God in their sinfulness. Um, there has to be barriers around these people, around anyone, coming in their sin nature to God. Even around, remember in the, the articles of the tabernacle furniture, you were not even to touch the Ark of the Covenant lest you die. And so there was a certain distance people had to keep because of God's holiness and their sinfulness. And so um, what Moses will be taught, even in this lesson here, right right with the burning bush, is that if you are not properly sanctified, you don't get any closer to me. Keep your distance, Moses. Notice that God has him take off his sandals. And you might say, what is that about? Well, it's a Hebrew culture mindset. It's, 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 it's in keeping with, with how the Hebrews thought. In the Hebrew culture, to take off your sandals... Uh, meant that you were entering into the presence of a superior person, which usually would occur, you know, formally if you went to someone's house for dinner, like a palace or their tent, no matter what, you took off your sandals in front of the superior. And, and this is what's happening. This is what God's trying to do with Moses. I am superior. You need to take off your sandals. And, and so this Sinai area, uh, because God is there, is 
where Yahweh is at. Therefore, the ground there is holy, and, and the symbolic meaning of taking off the sandals is, Moses, you are powerless. You must be humble before me. You are weak. You are incapable. You are dependent on me. And obviously, taking off his sandals makes him vulnerable. And, and, but at this point, what God's teaching Moses is, this is where I need you to have your mindset. You need to understand how humble you are in my presence. You need to understand how vulnerable you are. You need to understand this because this is how you receive my mercy and my grace. Now, in the Middle East, when you took off your sandals and you showed that, that deference to the host who was superior, superior to you, that is how you got the mercy from the host, is by taking off your sandals. So it's an act of trust and submission is really what taking sandals off means in the Hebrew culture, and that's what it means here. Now, what you see here is the holiness of God being manifested, obviously. Get back, Moses. Because him getting too close would kill him. So this is the immediate presence of Jesus. Um, and Moses, like all the other Old Testament saints, knew that they were sinful and could not be in the immediate presence of God, nor could they look at him lest they die. And even Peter in the New Testament shows a glimpse of this, this, this mindset as well. If you recall that um, he sees a glimpse and understands who Jesus is, that he's divine, when Jesus did a miracle, when he told the disciples where to fish, throw your nets on the right side of the boat, cast their nets out there, and they pulled up uh, the miraculous catch of fish. You recall that when he called them to be his full-time disciples. Well, after that miracle happens, Simon Peter says this, and this is in Luke 5.8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus, Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, this is interesting. He had saw the miracle, and the immediate response is to fall down and worship Jesus and tell him to depart from him. I am a sinful man. That's the same idea that we're seeing with Moses. Get back, Moses. You're a sinful man. And Peter intuitively knows to get away from Jesus because he's seen the holiness and the power of God in Jesus the Messiah. And so he, Peter has that same reaction. So holiness is one of the major themes in the book of Exodus. And because God is holy, what he's showing Moses is that he will bring to justice every situation on earth or eventually in eternity to justice. He will right every wrong. And in this situation, he's gonna bring justice to the Egyptians for what they have done to the Israelites. And eventually, he'll use uh, 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 Israel, the Israelites through Joshua to deal with the inhabitants of Canaan, or what we would call the promised land, to take care of all the injustices they're doing in the promised land. So God is righting the wrongs with Israel through Moses with what the Egyptians are doing. And so, again, when you look at Egypt... And you look at Israel and you look at God, what he's doing through Moses. Remember the typology. Egypt always represents the world. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping demons. They're worshiping fallen angels, all kinds of false gods. That's the ways of the world. And what God does is he delivers us out of the world through the Messiah. 
So you see a typology here with Moses, that Moses will play the part of the Messiah, and he will deliver Israel out of Egypt, delivering the, 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 the Messiah-like fig, figure, Moses, will deliver the, the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, and that's the, the picture of us being delivered out of the world as well. Again, it's a picture of holiness. It's a picture of deliverance and picture of justice. And thank God that Jesus took our penalty for our sin because God is holy and righteous and his anger was, was in wrath were upon us until we came to faith in Jesus Christ who took our sins upon him and satisfied the wrath of God when he paid for our sins on the cross. God's holy justice was satisfied by the death of the Messiah. God will also illustrate his holiness by giving Israel his law, which informs Israel of the morality and the ethics and the attitudes and the spiritual conduct uh, that he desires from that nation and that he wanted them to have. Now, as you know, as New Testament believers in the church age, we are no longer under the law of, the, uh, law of Moses. We are under the law of the Messiah. The same, many of the same principles still carry over. And, and, and so one of the things you notice with our, with our views of morality, our ethics, our attitudes as Christians, and we get those from a holy God, and that flies in the face of our culture. This is why our culture cannot stand us. It's really that, that it's not us per se. They cannot stand the holiness of God. They don't like his statutes. They don't like his law. They don't like his morality. And because of that, that's why this war is going on in the world. It's against God's holiness of what he says is right and what he says is wrong. Let's return back to the text. In verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father. Now, we, we know Moses' father was Amram. And then he goes on, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Amram was Moses' true father, right? And, and so God references his dad. Why is that? Because he's trying to point out to Moses, don't forget that you're a Jew. Don't forget you're a Hebrew, an Israelite, and that you're linked to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises that I made to your forefathers, I'm going to make good now on. I'm going to fulfill some of those promises I made to them. They're going to come to fruition. And Moses, you're the link in the chain. You're connected to them, and I'm going to use you to bring about one of the promises. And the one of the promises is for them to get back into the land. And that's going to be a big deal. So he's, and he's going to note that as well. Let's return to the text. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And again, the Old Testament teaching about, about this was that if God manifested in front of you, you could not look at him face to face. Otherwise, you would die. And, and so this was well known all the way from the days of Adam all the way through, even into the New Testament. Whereas even John sees Jesus and when he sees Jesus in his glory, he falls down as a dead man, and Jesus has to revive him. And so all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints knew if you saw God in his glory, he would kill you because he is so holy. Verse 7, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, 
and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And so what I want you to see here is God says he's going to come down to help them. I've seen the affliction. I've seen what they've been through. I understand what's happening to them. And what he's trying to tell Moses is I am personally involved in this. And the fact that I am personally involved, I'm coming down out of heaven. Now, it's kind of a, a Hebraic understanding of this because God, God is omnipresent. He doesn't need to come down from anywhere. But what does that mean in the Hebrew understanding, the Hebrew mindset? When you see a phrase like this, that God came down, it doesn't mean that God doesn't know what's going on or he doesn't see it because he's omniscient and, and he's omnipresent. It means that God is now going to take action against this. It's like a parent who's upstairs and she, uh, the mom, you know, hears the, the kids messing around downstairs and she knows what they're doing. She hears what they're doing. They're messing around. And she says, don't let me come down there. Because if she comes down there, what it means is that there's going to be some discipline if they keep acting up. Don't let me come down there. And so the idea in the Hebrew mind is when God says, I come down, he came down to see Sodom and Gomorrah. He comes down now. It means that I am now going to take action. The time is right. And, and the Egyptians are in trouble, basically. So what are some, some takeaways from all of this so far? Well, this holiness that is being expressed by God's presence is, is the basis of, of what's going to give Moses the assurance that God is with him. So as we're seeing this, the theme of holiness now is going to be the basis for the assurance for Moses. What do you mean by that? Well, his holiness is the basis for God's presence. So God is showing his holiness and is, going, and is basically telling Moses, I'm going to be with you in this. How so? How, how does the holiness... How is that the basis for God's presence? Well, three things I want to point out. Number one, God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. And you've heard that phrase before, okay? Because God is holy, he only responds to those who humbly ask for help, okay? And that's a major thing we saw with Israel. Israel suffered for a long time, but they wouldn't ask for help. And then they finally get to a point where they can't do it themselves and they ask for help. Holiness does not stand for pride. God will not deal with an individual or a nation or whatever, religious leaders, who are prideful because that flies in the face of his holiness. So what we see here is Moses was humbled. And the same thing that happens to Moses, Israel must be humbled as well in order to receive the help they need. And so God heard their cry, and they're humbling themselves by, by, by doing that, and now he's going to respond. And Israel now realized they can't handle the persecution of, of the Egyptians. It's beyond them. It's bigger than they thought. And now, now God's holiness is going to respond to the humbleness and then respond to the justice of the situation. So let's go to number two. How does God's holiness assure Moses that he's going to be with him, that he's going to be present? Well, it's because God makes good on his promises. 
God's holiness is tied to his character, obviously, and his character, when he makes promises, his character, his holiness ensures that the promises will come to fruition. See, God cannot lie, the scriptures say. He cannot abrogate anything he says. He cannot change. If he makes a promise, he cannot change that promise. And this is the basis for the help Israel will get. And so God has shown to Moses, I am holy. I made a promise a long time ago to Abraham, your forefather. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm going to make good on it, Moses. And part of the Abrahamic covenant involves the land, involves delivering uh, the Jews because I will not allow the Jews to be annihilated. I have promised Abraham he will always have seeds and his, his descendants will be like the stars of heaven. I will ensure that that won't stop. So look at this text. Look what he says in reference to the Abrahamic covenant. And he says this, and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. You see, why is God bringing that up? Because this aspect is now going to be put into effect. This is part of the promises in the Abrahamic covenant that Israel has possession of this land. It was called the land of Canaan, but it's called the promised land because this is the land God's going to give the Israelites. So as you recall, God made a promise to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And he told him his descendants will be like the stars in the sky or like the sand on the seashore. And in that Abrahamic covenant were three aspects. And I want to show you this graphic so you can kind of better understand. This is what Moses understood. This is why God says this to Moses. If you can see on this graph, the Abrahamic covenant at the top, the Abrahamic covenant promises land, a seed, and blessing. Those are the three aspects. What happens in biblical history is out of the Abrahamic covenant come three other covenants that are still in effect today. So all four covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, what we call the land covenant, which is the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, which is the seed aspect of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant, which is the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, all come and derive from this promise to Abraham. And they are still in effect. So when you see him talk about he's going to deliver Israel so that he can put Israel back into the land, he's dealing with the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Again, this goes back to God's holiness and goes back, because he is holy, to his promises that he makes. And when God is holy and he makes a promise, he will make good on that promise and ensure this. Now, just incidentally about the land. Israel never got the full land aspect. Uh, They they went into the land, but they didn't take the full land. It's yet to be taken. Eventually, Israel in the future will take the land by the Messiah's hand in the future at the second coming. And then that whole promise of the land will be granted to Israel during the Messianic age. But anyway, even as we talk today, what is the, the dispute in the Middle East? The dispute is over the land. And no one has a right to that land except the Israelites. And lastly, God's holiness is the basis for God's presence. Because number three, God empathizes with his people. This is the third basis for God's assurance of his presence. 
He is a holy and good God. Because he is holy, he is good. And that goodness and that holiness causes him to love the world. God so loved the world, right? And then to identify with human beings, he became a human being, right? In the person of Jesus Christ, took on an additional, additional nature to, in order to identify with his creatures called humans. That is showing God's holiness because his holiness shows his love. And his love comes out of that. And, and so because he is a good God. And so in verse 9, you see an example of this. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So God identifies with the suffering of his people. He is for his people, and he is for us. He's not against us. And in fact, God is the God who actually suffers with his people and us. God hurts when, when we hurt. And as you know, Jesus is our sympathetic high priest through the incarnation. What that means is that God became a man to identify with us and to feel and experience the limitations and pains of being a human being. He lived on earth as a man with us. He suffered an ordinary life. And the writer of Hebrews notes this in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the idea is Jesus has been there with us in our pain. And Jesus, and, and Jesus went beyond our suffering. He suffered more than any human being could possibly imagine. He suffered for the entire world's sins that were laid on him, past, present, and future. And, you know, at that point, folks, our, our minds just go on tilt. It's just hard to imagine how much he suffered on the cross. It wasn't just the physical suffering. It was the spiritual suffering that he had, being separated from the Father. No one has ever suffered more than Jesus. So no one can say, well, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. He doesn't get me. He doesn't know. No, he does. He actually does. And he knows way more than we've ever suffered than any person in the universe. He does know how much we're suffering. He does empathize. And this is why it's important um, when you're dealing with your own pain and your own hurt, that when you examine that pain and that hurt, you understand that Messiah has suffered the same as you have. And because of that, you know that you have a God that's personal, that loves you, and, and will empathize with you. He is not some distant God. And that's what he's trying to get across to Moses. Moses, I'm a holy God. You gotta keep your distance. But remember, he says, Moses, Moses, indicating God's love for Moses, his tender care for him. So you see all this balancing here. And why? To assure Moses, I am going to be with you. I will be present with you through all of this. You will not face this alone. You acted alone before, 40 years ago. We're not gonna make that same mistake twice. You're gonna, you're gonna follow my lead, and I promise you that I will be with you because I identify with the suffering of my people and I'm not going to allow this anymore. So now let's return to the burning bush and this is going to be our application. As you can see, God revealing his holiness to Moses assured Moses of his presence in this new calling. 
And God does the same thing for us. God is assuring us through his holiness that whatever he has in store for us coming next, that he will be with us. His presence is guaranteed with us because of his holiness. He loves us. He, he, God will right the wrongs, whether in this life or the next, and we can trust God in all of this. But what is the idea of the burning bush? What is the message behind that? What is this? It is in the same vein in the application. Obviously, Christ, the Messiah, or Yahweh himself is present in the bush. The second person of the Trinity is present in the bush. And we see this because of the Shekinah glory, and it says the angel of the Lord is there. And it represents God's judgment, right? Okay, remember, fire represents to God's enemies the, the fire of judgment of any enemies, that that fire will consume the enemies of God. And obviously, uh, that in reference in this passage to the Egyptians, but this is a general principle. The fire also represents the disciplining of God's own people through affliction and trials that come from outside sources. Did you notice that the bush is not consumed by the fire, which means that the bush itself, the singular bush, refers to something that will be refined, not, not destroyed. The bush is not destroyed. So take a guess what you think the bush refers to. It's, it, the, the Lord is there in the midst of it, the Shekinah glory is there. The fire is going to be used to destroy the enemies. And the fire is there, but it won't consume the bush. If you think hard enough and you see what's behind the bush, the messaging behind the bush is the bush is none other than the nation of Israel. And the messaging to Moses that he's going to take about Israel is because Yahweh is there in the midst of Israel in his Shekinah glory, Israel will not be consumed by the affliction from her enemies, but will be refined by these afflictions. The judgment of God, the fire, will be put on the Egyptians, and they will be consumed, but Israel will not be consumed. The bush, then, will be perfected and purified by this. And so... The refinement and the purification of Israel, which will not be consumed by the fire, is for future use. That's the idea. The truth of the burning bush is intended to give comfort and assurance that the great I am, which we will see next week as he introduces his name, when Moses asks his name, that this, the great I am, Yahweh, has the power to deliver her from her enemies with the Egyptians, he will do it in the past, like with the, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and he will one day do it again. Even today, Israel still represents the burning bush. When people try to mess with the nation of Israel, they do not understand that the angel of the Lord is in her midst and his fire protects her, and that fire will go out to, to burn her enemies, but will refine her. We see this in the ultimate future. When Israel will go through the fires of the tribulation, will be not consumed, but purified. And the fires of judgment will come upon the Antichrist, who, who the Pharaoh of Egypt is a typology for the Antichrist. 
Israel will not be consumed in the future. She will make it through, be refined, and all of Israel will be saved. It's the same idea. It's the same principle. As you recall, if you look at Israel's history, she has never been consumed by her enemies. Egyptians, the Assyrians, Babylonians, Grecians, Empire, uh, the Romans, the Russians, the Nazis, they will never be consumed. Everybody that tries to destroy Israel, Israel then stands at their grave because the angel of the Lord, second person of the Trinity, is protecting Israel, is watching over her, and the bush will not be consumed. Now that brings us to our point. How do you make a personal application off of that? Well, the idea here, here, obviously, the primary understanding of this and the meaning is it refers to Israel, okay. But the principle, though, is still the same. This same type of protection can apply to the church as well. Us as we're in the church age, okay. And, and Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail, right? It's, oh, it's the same principle, it's said in a different way. It's illustrated by a different illustration. I will build the church and the gates of hell won't prevail. It's the same idea. The church, the remnant church, the real church will not be consumed by the fires of, of trial and tribulations. It won't. It's just the same as Israel. God protects his people in the midst of the fiery judgments. Does he, does he use that those things to, to refine them? Of course he does. He's refining the church right now. He's shaking the church right now uh, about you know all this crisis that we're going through right now. So think about this. In many ways, the church is like Israel because you know Israel's the apple of God's eye. We are the bride of Christ, and he pr protects both entities. When the ultimate fire is going to come, Israel will be like the burning bush and will go through the tribulation. But the church will be removed prior to the tribulation. It's a picture of Enoch and Noah. Noah went through the flood. Enoch was removed prior to the flood. Both were believers. Both are beloved by God, but God handed them different ways. And that's the same thing that we see with church believers in the church age and the Israelites. We will be handled differently, but it is the same principle. God protects us and watches out for us because of his holiness. So God assures us in whatever he has called us to do, in these next days ahead, the next seasons of life that we're going to encounter, he says he'll be with us in the fire. The fire won't consume us. The afflictions and the trials won't consume us. Nothing that comes our way can affect the mission God has for you and I. His will will be done, and no one will be able to stop it. As you'll see with what he does with Moses, he can do with you and I in our lives as well. If we follow Yahweh, he will take us through the fire. Now, a lot of times he doesn't remove the fire. He doesn't remove us out of it. But he says to us, I will be with you in the fire. I will provide for you in the fire. I will, I, my presence is a guarantee. You won't be alone. Follow me, humble yourself, and I will take you through the fire. I, I am Yahweh. I will provide assurance that you will make it. And because of that, that gives courage to Moses and it gives courage to us. God is saying, do not be afraid, for I am with you. You can take on anything that comes your way. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. 
Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.